Hey, everybody, it's Sarah reminding you to check out the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny. That's her dog. It's one of the best NFL pods around, and Mina's mix of analytics and wit is second to none. It's a must-listen for me every week, especially to get ready for the weekend slate of games. Check out the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Arpietti, and my dilemma is there is a bankruptcy of trust between us and between us and our governments. Man, this is a hell of a dilemma, (laughs) and it's one I'm uh, just slightly beginning to understand better after watching the documentary The Social Dilemma, Um, sort of understanding that our internet searches and likes and our choices on the internet influence what we're going to see next and what opinions and quote-unquote facts we're going to be exposed to. I now get that we all sort of live in different realities, and what I see and read and hear and trust isn't what someone else scrolling through their Facebook or even Google searching might get. And because of that, we're more distant. We're more prone to think the other side is crazy and uninformed. We're more likely to settle things with anger and violence than coming together, trying to connect. And that obviously goes up to the governmental level, too, where misinformation is sort of at an all-time high and we can't find that trust we're looking for. So, you know, if a politician says something assertively and with conviction, people who are, you know, quote unquote, on their side are going to believe it facts be damned. It's kind of terrifying. I wish I had a solution for you. Uh, The best and simplest answer, though it may be painfully slow, is probably to educate ourselves, right? Become more digitally literate so we can identify well-sourced and reported facts versus propaganda or conspiracy sites um, so we can understand the motivations behind misleading press conferences or statements so we can figure out the truth or lack thereof within them. And also just spend more time reading experts instead of arguing with people in comment sections. Uh, Obviously, also need a massive overhaul of the practices of the White House and Congress and the Senate and government in general. Less fighting, more compromise so we can get back to trusting that they're doing their jobs, get back to trusting that we're all using the same set of facts and reality to make decisions based off of. Um, I, you know, we could start just by listening to you, RP. You seem to know a lot of things. So let's start with that. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Randolph Post Eddie, a.k.a. RP. His bio is unfathomably impressive and incredibly long. So here are the most important things you need to know about him and why you should listen to him on all matters of COVID and our country's response and hopeful eventual recovery. He's a businessman, investor, author, former U.S. government official, former U.N. senior diplomat. He created the first White House pandemic response for a previous administration. He's advised Clinton, Bush and Obama, previously served as chief of staff to Richard Holbrook, senior advisor to Secretary of Energy Bill Richardson, senior policy advisor to U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan. He was an architect of the Global Fund to Prevent AIDS, TB, and Malaria, which has since saved over 21 million lives worldwide. He's now the CEO of Ergo, a strategy and geopolitical intelligence firm, and the CEO of Four Rivers, an investment firm focusing on Asia. Eddie co-wrote, along with Richard Clark, a best-selling and award-winning book in 2017 called Warnings on Forecasting and Decision-Making that predicted this pandemic. He got a Bachelor of Science in Neuroscience from Brown He has tremendous hair, and despite being absolutely brilliant, he knows how to speak to the average person about high-level, complicated issues. So he was the perfect person to come on. Uh, We talked about why this pandemic was predictable and how we could be in a better situation now if we handled it differently. 
how we can be aware of the challenges to our mental health and our psyche so we can make better decisions and counteract anxiety and stress. This was really important, kind of understanding how our brains work in crisis and also why a long-term threat like COVID, as opposed to immediate threats like an oncoming bear or something, uh, why the long-term threats are so hard to wrap our heads around. Also, what we can expect in the coming colder months with the flu and COVID, what to do about the issue of long haulers, people who show complications from coronavirus months after they've tested negative and the virus is allegedly gone. This is a really fascinating and super necessary conversation. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, One note, we spoke before the news of President Trump's positive COVID infection was made public. RP did address a few issues around that news on his YouTube show that he's been doing during COVID that RP Daily. You can find that by searching the Nantucket Project on YouTube or go to tnp.us. So courtesy of that RP Daily he allowed us to use some sound from that uh, from Saturday morning. These are sort of his opening thoughts after hearing the news of Trump's infection. There's a ton of questions that, that we have to pay attention to. And one thing, you know, there's a question about the biology. What do we expect is going to happen? How sick may he or may he not get? And regardless, and I think one thing that we said last time, and I think we should say this time is, you know, let's obviously no schadenfreude. Uh, and, um, you know, let's just think about he and Melania as, you know, two fellow humans who are sick with a disease that can really hurt people. Uh, and then you get to the geopolitical implications, the implications of the election, et cetera. So there's a lot of, lot of stuff to unpack. He also had some interesting thoughts about mental cognition issues to consider and a timeline on the infection and its effects. Another problem we've talked a lot about with this disease and something that America is not considering now economically, and I hope we don't really have to consider it, but the science says we will, is the long-term debilitation of people who get this disease. 50% of folks who are symptomatic, huge number, end up with some degree of debilitation up to six months later. Now, of course, the disease is eight months old, so there's not, there's not a ton of people with that data, but from China data, Italy data, some US data, we see people six months recovered, 50% of them, and some people say as high as 90, so let's say the science isn't answered on that, but it's, it's more than 50, it appears, have either debilitation in their heart, lung, or brain um, of some sort. So that's scary, and that could be something the president could suffer from in Melania, the first lady, later as well. Uh, so the, anyway, continuity government, those are my thoughts on that. We're going to hear more from RP on Trump's positive test and the effects on protocols, America's behavior and response to the pandemic later in the pod. But for now, let's get into the original recording and some really fascinating insight from RP. That's what she said. Well, now that I've read his resume, we only have two minutes left. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, uh, we have a lot to get to here. And I am just so thankful that you gave me some of your very valuable time to talk, in part because... Um, as someone who is not very anxious but has felt anxious in recent months, I, I worry a lot for people who need to be directed to um, the answers that they're looking for, the places they should go looking for answers, and a feeling of understanding of, of how we're all reacting to this very strange time and what might be coming next. Uh, as a bit of a control freak, I find that's the biggest concern for me is not being able to make plans and not really knowing what's next. And so hopefully over the course of this conversation, we'll get some answers on the things that can be answered and then Um, at least some better understanding on the things that are still yet unknown. And I I watched a video that you made back in March, and it was interesting to rewatch it 
uh, in preparation for this interview and hear what things you were so very correct about and then what things you were perhaps more hopeful than yeah. uh, this world was deserving of you uh, putting your faith in uh, in terms of where we would be now and how the, this whole thing might progress. Uh, I did just read your full resume, but if there's any way for you to sort of summarize why you should be trusted, why you're a credible expert, and why when there is a bankruptcy of trust right now, people might consider you someone worth listening to on this. Well, never trust a man who says, trust me. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know that you should trust me. And you should, I think part of the challenge we have to do right now is figure out who we can trust. And what does it mean that someone is trustworthy? What does it mean for us all to become experts on experts, which we kind of have to do right now? Mm. Um, you know, why, why is it worth you listening to me for a second? Well, they're probably not listening to me. They're listening to you, Sarah. So um, <laughs> I, I've just been lucky enough to get to serve in some roles in the government, in multilateral organizations, in the private sector that exposed me to real experts and let me understand what they believe and allowed me, I think, to be pretty good at discerning um, the weed from the chaff and the bullshit from the truth and the expert from the charlatan. And um, so, you know, what is it that I, I, I have titles, you know, so I, <laughs> I, I was, um, I graduated with a degree in neuroscience and I did some um, some work on that. I was a director at the White House National Security Council. I've worked in both parties' administrations. Um, I was a U.S. diplomat and senior diplomat, and then I was a senior U.N. diplomat. So I handed in my my, my U.S. diplomatic passport, and I got a blue U.N. passport. Um, I am a best-selling author of a book about decision-making and warnings. And really, as we were saying, it's a book about how to discern what's an expert and who's not, who is and who isn't. And there's a chapter um, on pandemics. You and were ahead a, of the game. Yeah. Well, there, yeah. how about that? Right. Like listen yeah. to me because I wrote a book in 2017 that said there'd be a pandemic. So yeah. we can make it that simple. Thanks but, for not fixing it in advance. I know. I'm sorry. I, I had a vacation <laughs> to go to. So. <laughs> um, I think that's good. And honestly, hopefully people also trust my decision-making and who I uh, offer up as someone worth listening to and worth spending your time with. Um, Speaking of that book and that chapter, why was this pandemic predictable? And well, let's just start there. Why, why was it predictable? Uh, there's 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 scientific reasons and there are human reasons. So the scientific reasons are you know we're constantly at war with microbes and um, and we 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 actually lose consistently too, right? There's still people who are dying constantly of HIV, HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, all sorts of tropical diseases. You know, pre-corona, the flu. Um, and it, it's an ongoing battle and, and, you know, we, it's, it's about our, we make the castle walls higher and the disease makes the catapult stronger and this goes on. So it's, it's always out there. Then you get to this reality that we're encroaching more and more on nature and we're having this thing called epizootic shift. So as we get closer and closer to animals, so in the classic example would be bush meat eating in Africa, right? So Africans who would go out and kill and eat monkeys then became exposed to something that later we, we knew as HIV, right? So that transmitted from, from people hunting monkeys, getting blood on their fingers and cutting their fingers and getting the blood transmission. And then that disease became a human transmission. Um, now, the Wuhan, uh, wet, the Wuhan wet markets are perhaps the, the, the home of the vector of this disease, this, this, this CV-19, coronavirus-19 virus. So again, Perhaps it came from a bat that was being sold at a wet market, right? So we are, you know, we're cons consistently closer and closer to these animals. We're, we're taking up more and more of their habitat. There's more overlap. So that's one reason. The other reason that a pandemic, so that, that would describe people getting sick. Mm -hmm. But how does it grow so rapidly, so globally? 
And if you look at the transmission of the Spanish flu or even HIV AIDS, which really began transmitting before the 60s, it took a long time to rip into the size that it did. Um, it, nowadays, things are moving much faster. We all know why, right? It's global interconnectivity. It's the fact that we are, you know, um, you can be anywhere in the world, literally anywhere in the world, I think, including Antarctica in 24 hours. So, uh, and people do. And if you look at the videos of, you know, air flight patterns back and forth, you know, we're everywhere always. Um, so yeah, it we was, used to have tribes and now our tribe is the whole world. <laughs> well, you know, tribe's a big word and we'll, I think we'll probably get to it at some point in this conversation, but, and we also still have our tribes, mm -hmm. right? And that's part of our problem. Um, and, and, you know, our brains are really, really designed to understand our tribe. We're really, really understand, to understand the 120 to 140 people that it's called Dunbar's number that kind of are in and around us and to know everything about them and who they like and who they don't like. That's what this brain is perfectly optimized for. That's, that's our number one optimization of this brain. And, um, and we'll talk about it in a bit if you'd like, but that's why social media is so addictive. That's why, you know, et cetera. So tribe yeah, I saw Chicago ideas weeks with Sebastian Junger, all about tribes and the, con you know, conflicting ideas of our ability to meet and engage with more people, but our brain's sort of capacity to understand and want to separate based on certain groups of people, uh, which was interesting. It's not something that I had thought much of. That's very well put. And, and just adding to that, it's like, it's kind of, you know, the raw material feedstock that our brain desires so badly is connectivity with other humans. Um, mm -hmm. And when you get on something like social media, which is optimized to manipulate you and have you just fire consistently in the, the pain path, the, excuse me, the pleasure pathway of that connectivity, you, you just overwhelm it with feedstock. There's just too much coming into the factory and it leads to negative outcomes, particularly yeah. when you're manipulated by bad people. Yeah, that that social experiment or social that new that social new dilemma, social dilemma, watch, which I haven't watched yet. Watch but movie. I heard I, that. I, yeah, the social dilemma uh, put together and starring my friend Tristan Harris. Um, it's it's it might literally be the best movie I've ever seen. It's wow, okay. the most important movie that I've seen in you know a decade. I can say that easily. Right. Now the problem, sir, you and I are both Chicagoans. If I say it's the best movie I've ever seen, that means I'm saying it's better than the Blues Brothers, which is yeah. always or been Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which yeah. is a, so really not, up there. I'm not quite sure I'm there, Tough. but different it's, different genres. So maybe you're okay. Little different. <laughs> different uh, intended outcomes. Um, no, but I've had neuroscientists on before because I'm really in, in, interested in, in neuroplasticity and our brains and everything, and the idea that you can lose X amount of minutes every time your brain just knows that there's a notification waiting for you because it's like, ooh, new information. That's really important. I need to make sure I'm aware of the new information because we were actually evolutionary, you know, built to pay attention to things that have changed and to understand whether they put us at danger or they can help us. Uh, and instead, it's just some dumb forwarded meme. But because of it, I now am aware it's there and I've lost all this many minutes on my focus. So it's very um, well put. And, yeah. and, I, and I would, you know, I would echo what my 14 year old son Reed just said to me, which is, you know, attention's like riding a bicycle. It's really easy to stop, but it's harder to get back in the pedals and speed back up. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. It's easy to lose attention, but it, it's more effort to build the attention. Absolutely. So how and why could we, or I guess, should we be in a better situation now, knowing that the pandemic was something we could have seen coming and that we had had previous um, pandemics? Well, um, you know, if you use the rough math that there's 200 nations in the world, or let's say there's clearly 20 of the 20 largest, the G20, um, 19 of them uh, largely 
did know a pandemic was coming and were well prepared and have a much better outcome than this one nation, the United States, um, which is ironic considering we had by far the best disease control center in the world, the CDC. We have by far the best bio and health tech in the world. And we have by far, or certainly one of the very best supply lines in the world. Yet we have the worst Corona outcome in the world. Now there are, there are margins on theirs, you know, um, like Brazil might be worse, but for major nations and Belgium's worse, but I mean, Belgium's the size of like a town in New York. Um, so, but for major nations, we have the absolutely the worst outcome. So, so, uh, and by, and by the way, um, we were largely prepared. We were largely, we had the tools, we had the people and we had the intelligence, meaning the data, not the brain power to do this right. Um, um, up until the point we just decided not to do it right. So it was what ended up happening here. You know, the disease progresses by math. The response progresses by culture and leadership. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, our culture and leadership just were not suited to fight this thing the way that every other national leader did fight and, and fight effectively. So failure of implementation more so than failure of plan or response. I'd say that's right. I'd say it, it certainly wasn't failure of imagination and it wasn't failure. of Yeah, it was just not not doing what the experts said we ought to do. Um, and, and, and part of it gets to this, again, question of tribes and in the bankruptcy of trust is the inability to lead and communicate across the country about what we ought to do properly. Right. And, um, and so like, why is there, why is there almost certainly a person listening to your podcast? I know some people do who actually believes that wearing a mask doesn't help him or her and doesn't help him or her's neighborhood. It may actually harm them. Like there's someone out there right now listening to us who believes that. Um, when every single piece of medical science says that's not true. I, I wrote, I read 42 medical studies over the weekend. I asked an anti-mask person, send me every document you have that shows that this is, you know, I'm, I'm willing to look at the data. And I looked at, as I said, 42 studies, um, uh, and the follow on notes, everything. Um, and there's literally not a single argument to be made that with peer-reviewed science that that of course masks work right but people believe they don't so we allowed that to take hold and there's a whole god there's so many aspects of it but you know some of it's some of it's decades-long hubris of public health officials there's a lot of issues that came home to roost right now but ultimately culture and leadership and anti-intellectualism to me is one of the biggest things when combined with the issues of social media this this like refuting of people who are experts at what they do whether that's as you know political figures or actual scientists or climate scientists, it feels like there's an actual intentional pushback to people who are educated and informed. That seems like it could be underlying a lot of what's happened in the last couple of months as well. Yes, um, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's it's the making an ad- a positive attribute out of anti-intellectualism. Like I am... I am signaling, I'm value signaling to you by being an intellectual. Somehow mm-hmm. we respond to that. And f- first of all, it's been in our, it's been in a human, well, it, it's been an issue in America at least. And I think in a lot of cultures for as long as we've recorded history. So it's not new. Um, and it's also kind of get reiterated, reiterated, con- reiterated constantly. I have to remind my, we have three little boys here that like, I know we all like the Simpsons and we enjoy watching it, but Bart's, you know, Bart's, you know, obstreperous behavior with teachers, his oppositional behavior with teachers, like that's just a joke. It's not the way you're supposed to respond to teachers. And mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of signaling out there that makes us think that's the way you're supposed to be. And a lot of it, 
a lot of it is part of the male psyche as well, I think. Agreed on that. Uh, it reminds me of uh, the NBA player Kyrie Irving saying the earth was flat and teachers saying that they had kids come in and literally fight them in class about what they were teaching because this NBA player said the earth was indeed flat. Uh, which and is- then Kyrie Irving coming out and saying... Oh, I was just joking. I was just testing you and thought about it. No, he said I was lied to. He said, he said I went on social media and I went down the wrong rabbit hole. He literally used the really? word rabbit Because I never I went, saw that. Uh, it's I on Social Dilemma. That. It's on the Social Dilemma. Oh. I know it. Because okay, uh, the only thing I was him later on saying, oh, I was kind of testing everyone. And I thought, was that really intentional? I don't think it was. I think he got duped and then was if trying to back. If it's the same him. NBA player that's in the social media. Yeah, I'm guessing Kyrie Irving is the one known for flat earthing. Um, so when you uh, did this video back in March, and it was with, I believe, the Nantucket Project, right? If people yeah. want to go back and watch it. Um, if you search so RPN. Since then, there, we, you could have watched one from yesterday. Really? Okay. I I had had the original one sent from our mutual friend and I went back to go look at it. And I remember at the time I even posted this because I thought it was so meaningful. Uh, you talked about what's happening to our brains during a pandemic and during this incredible shift in our everyday lives and, and fears and everything else. And you said, we're bags of meat driven by biases and heuristics. And the wet computer between our ears is rife with completely knowable thinking errors. Anybody involved with this other than a Fauci level epidemiologist had to go through a lot of wrestling with your biases to think this is real. This is actually happening. And it was um, one of those comfort in just understanding what's going on. So can you sort of explain that a little better, this idea that we have to literally convince ourselves or allow ourselves to understand that this incredibly strange and unbelievable thing is going on in our lives and in the world. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, I think a lot of this has to get, it has to do with just self-awareness, right. And, and any human being at anywhere, you have to understand that, well, you know, you, all of us are quite sure we've kind of got it all figured it out. We've got it all figured out. Um, we don't. And the, the tool we use to perceive and act, in this world is a wet computer between our ears. It's 140,000 years old. Um, it was designed, and I refer to your brain, obviously, and it was designed not for the complexity of modern day era, but as I was saying earlier, it's designed, it's really optimized to live in a tribe with about 120, 140 people and do a little hunter gather, a little, a little natural, you know, farming and fishing and stuff. Um, and it's not designed for the, the, the era in which we find ourselves. And so, when you find yourself in a more and more, let me give you an example that's kind of fascinating. When the first train, so you remember the way the U.S. train line was was designed, a uh, train came from the East Coast, a train from, came from the West Coast, and they met in the middle, met in the middle of America. And the town in which they met, it was a huge party when the two trains were going to meet in the middle of the country. And no one in, in this town had seen a train. Trains were very new, very novel, and as we know, they're very big and they're very fast. So when they set the train line up through this town. And the first train came steaming through. It killed two people, including the mayor's wife, oh. because they had never seen anything like this before. They didn't realize something this big could move that fast and was going to come flying through this track. And they weren't particularly idiots and they weren't drunk. They just, our brain doesn't adapt to absolutely brand new and different and rapid stimulus like it ought to. And we have all these called biases and heuristics, which are just errors of thinking inside the way we work that are constantly plaguing us and letting us make bad decisions. Uh, and so we make bad decisions all day, every day. You do, I do, everyone listening to us does. And a lot of them are, you know, you've heard different ways of this being explained. It's emotion over rationality. Um, it's it's correlation over causation. It's all these errors that we make. 
Um, and, and I, you know, one example that, so anyway, now we have a virus, right? And the virus, the, the biggest issue about the virus is that earlier is the virus, as my co-host Tom Scott said, the virus really grows, you know, understand the way the virus grows, it's just math, but it happens to be um, exponential growth. And our brains just don't compute for exponential growth, right? So this disease happens to have a transmissibility factor of three, an R naught of three, which means that if I have it, I'm likely to infect three more people, and then they will infect nine more people, they will infect 27 more people, and off we go, right? Um, and that's that's exponential growth. We don't compute that way unless we literally sit down and map it out and write it. So that's just one example of how we don't understand. Our brain's not designed how to do this. And that's before you get into all the biases. We were talking about tribalism. I talked about causation over correlation, um, vice versa. There's there's a whole variety of things that make us get this wrong. And I could go through the list of biases. I don't know that that would be interesting for anybody, but we're not designed for this. We're also not designed to comprehend things like uh, self-recursive artificial intelligence, a whole different conversation. But what I refer to there is computers that train themselves and suddenly get much, much smarter than we are. Mm. Um, that's just something that by definition is a huge, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of an impossibility for our brain to comprehend. So a lot of these things are out there. So what does that mean? It means the punchline of that, if you don't mind me jumping to it is that there are people out there who are pretty good at getting, you know, what's up with disease. We call them vaccinologists. We call them epidemiologists. We call them public health officials. And and what it means is, even with my experience in disease, which is long, um, I still 100% call up Rear Admiral Ken Bernard and say, "What does this mean?" I call up Ian Lipkin, who was the guy who was the 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 the, the advisor to that movie Contagion. He's probably the number one virologist in the world. What does that mean? And I ask them, and I know I have to trust them um, because, and if I don't trust them, then I'm going to make really bad decisions because my brain isn't trained, nor is it adapted to this kind of reality. How has it been made more complicated by the fact that for many, this disease presents as not a big deal, right? So when we hear Ebola or HIV or malaria or things that we have become attuned to be afraid of, we take it very seriously. But because of the way we didn't at first take this seriously as, as in terms of how it would spread, but then when it did spread, there were many that had it and were asymptomatic. How has that complicated things? Yeah, uh, great question. So if this disease were deadlier, there'd be a lot less people dead. Yeah. Yeah, which is insane. Uh, and, well, yeah, but it also gets this point of bias about biases, right? So if it doesn't come up and punch you in the face and limbically terrify you, then it's very hard for you to get out of your pattern, right? So if I don't understand right away why, geez, why, why can't I go to the bar? You know, why can't I go to my fraternity party? Why, why can't I go to the grocery store without a mask on? If you don't understand why those sacrifices will serve you limbically, meaning like your monkey brain gets it. Then it's hard to, for you to change that behavior. We're, we're we're animals of routine and pattern. So, so when something like Ebola pops up, like you literally bleed to death through your eyeballs. Like, okay, okay, I get it. I don't want that shit. Well, then you know <laughs> right. you you you're going to change your behavior. Um, when this thing shows up, now that's that's part one, right? Part two is this disease also is a little tricky. Um, and you mentioned why it it there, we don't know the number yet, but it's forty to seventy percent of people who have the disease are asymptomatic. That's a very high number. Um, 
and and part two that uh, you 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 we we have a real problem with testing in this country. We never we still have yet to get the test right. You're not going to test positive at any no matter how good your test is for two days, and then you're potentially not going to test positive for up to fourteen days, more likely five to seven days. So I could have the disease, I could be asymptomatic for fourteen days, worst case scenario, and I could be spreading it for probably twelve of those fourteen days. So for all these sports that have daily testing, someone could, in theory, go get it. And for that first however many days, they could not test positive but still be spreading it. Yes, but if you start the clock two weeks before and you keep up with it and you and you maintain a bubble, then you should be fine. Right. So, right? Ju- so just it, the one sport with the bubble then. So they're fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know what, what the other sports are doing. But yeah. if you, well, and then, then you look, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not directly linear to your question, but we, we are we do feel better about transmission outside, right? It, it doesn't seem right. to transmit as well at all outside. Right. So when you were talking back in March, one of the things you talked about is the linear progression of threat and why it's difficult mm-hmm. to remain concerned and vigilant and w- take the same precautions months later, um, even if you are continuing to stay educated about the risks and you understand that 200,000 plus people have died. Can you talk about what our brains are doing there because it is sort of like a a, a version or or a, a, a something a, around the fight or flight. Like you can only flight for so long. <laughs> now you know what I think. One thing that we were talking about early on was when I see the saber toothed tiger coming across the plains towards me and my family, hundred and thirty thousand years ago, and I get my spear up, I can watch the tiger progress to me linearly. When And I can see it at a mile, maybe it's on a ridge line. It could be like, not so bad. Half a mile, here it comes, everyone get ready. Quarter mile, 100 yards, guys get ready. We're puckering up, you know. <laughs> but when it's out there, I don't have to freak out about it. Now, what if that saber-toothed tiger's speed increased exponentially? So he starts off at 20 miles an hour. Next thing I know, he's 120 miles an hour. Then he's 360 miles an hour. Next thing I know, it's 1,000 miles an hour. This is the man in black from The Princess Bride. Yeah. Is that right? It's getting faster (laughs) (laughs) on the cliffs of despair. Anyway. Um, Well, my wife could certainly try my (laughs) favorite movie. Um, And, uh, and, and our brain is just not ready for that, that exponential logarithmic growth. And that's what this disease has. It's it's, every, every viral disease does, but you know, remember, of course, we always talk about viral growth. Like, Oh, this person's going viral on the internet. Well, this disease is viral and it's growing that fast too. So, uh, we're, so we're part not- of it is that we were, when it was, this is a crazy thing happening in China. This is a crazy thing happening in New York. Oh, this might come here. There's a couple people. And then all of a sudden, it's so many people that it's uh, it's we can't maintain the same level of, of fear over long periods of time. Yeah. And, and if you live in South Dakota up until literally yesterday, which now is the fastest rate of growth in the country, oh. um, you still don't quite believe it. Right, you're like, what? Oh, this is, and and then you fall, and then you add the social media and all the media media manipulation, and a president who's 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 profiting from us getting bad information. And by the way, that's a fact. I don't mean money, and we can talk about that in a second if you'd like. Um, and you're in South Dakota, and like, look, the people who are dying are dying in old folks' homes. A, a third, uh, people who are dying are older, three quarters. People who are dying are African American, twice as many as the population, so twenty six percent. Um, and if you're a white young dude in South Dakota, like this doesn't seem very proximate. So again, why do I have to in, uh, have a cost to my life for something that I don't see here? Right. And again, if it was a bullet, I'm going to bleed out my eyeballs. I'll deal. 
and and we're getting fatigue, right? We're getting mask fatigue. We're getting you know this just just over time. You know, we're going to start breaking down our compliance to the rules that are necessary if we started following in the first instance. And when you have leaders, back to your point about tribalism, that tell you don't worry about it. Well, it's pretty awfully convenient to to take that advice compared to not go see my pal. I want to go hang out with them. You know, you know, you and I have some friends in common. Sarah, so like I want to sit with them at a bar. You yeah. better believe I do. Right. Yeah. It, and I think, um, you know, to, to that point, when you have Im- people that have a- assumed a position of power, uh, whether they're experts or not, there are some who will consider them worthy of listening to. And if they say it's not a big deal, no one's really getting it. Um, it allows them to continue prolonging their understanding of it. But how do we actually and, and can we be aware of the challenges to our psyches, make better decisions, counteract either the anxiety and stress of not knowing or counteract the sort of laissez-faire approach as well. So either either end of that, how do we prevent ourselves from being completely overwhelmed and or from shrugging and saying, I guess I, I guess I won't worry about it because it's too big of a thing to, to think about. It's not an easy answer, um, unfortunately. I know, I mean, look, I'll tell you the easy answer, the actual easy answer, but it's not the one that's going to work for people. The actual easy answer um, is probably the closest we're going to get is, you know, look at what Anthony Fauci says and do what he says, like, you know, fine. But he's also made one mistake in this disease so far, at least about mask wearing. Um, but, but here's the real, the real answer. The real answer is first, just accept that our brain is constantly making mistakes and that's just what it means to be human. And that's again, this phrase biases and heuristics, right? We, we make the wrong decisions all the time. So understand that that's the way we are. And then, and so first of all, so you just lost half the people in the conversation. Like, I, <laughs> I forget it, right? And then right. the people that are left, now you have to understand what those mistakes are, what those those cognitive errors are that we make all the time, those biases. And now you've lost another quarter of people. And then you get to the people who are left and, the, and like, how do you, because you never overcome them, but how do you operate around them or how are you aware of them? And so this is this idea of self-awareness. And so before Corona, one of, well, even now, one of the things that's made me very hopeful about America, particularly, is that we have more and more conversation about teaching self-awareness and teaching inclusion and teaching, and this doesn't have to do with George Floyd type inclusion, although that's great too. This has to do with like being more inclusive in your thinking, um, not being so dismissive of someone's point of view because they look different than you. They're not in your tribe. They're not of the party you vote for, but actually learn how to assess data based on data's sake. So um, that's hard to do. And and so ultimately we have to, look, this was a lot easier up until call it 1990, right? We lived in a very different world where we had very established figures of authority. Now, once in a while, a figure of authority was bad, um, but in many instances, the figure of authority wasn't. And it was a hierarchical system and it kind of took time to get there. So the union leader the church leader, and both of those had bad examples, of course. Um, the political leader, the one of the three people on the nightly news. Um, uh, the I already mentioned the church leader. So the business leader, you know, there was to some extent. Now, this all of a sudden you kind of have a lot of people saying, "But these were horrible times for minorities and women." I, believe me, I completely understand that. I'm saying, in a world where we do allow some hierarchy of knowledge and we're willing to, or excuse me, hierarchy of judgment. And we're willing to accept that certain people's judgments on areas in which their expert is more powerful or worthy of consideration than our own narcissistic tendencies. We'll make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Right? right now, everyone's opinion matters. Mm-hmm. There's, you can go find 
literally any concept you want to believe in. And you can go find a, a, a quote unquote credentialed person telling it's true. You want to believe master dangerous. There's 25 doctors on the internet right now who I don't just I don't know what is wrong with them, but they'll tell you master dangerous and they're simply wrong. And if you watch one of them, then the internet will find another for you. And that confirmation bias will cycle, which is part of that uh, social there dilemma that yeah. uh, once you get into that whole same, like Kyrie Irving and the flat earth and, and you keep following the rabbit, um, Fall down a rabbit hole. and by the time you're well, done, you've convinced yourself that yeah. it's right. Although yeah. I do think, you know, John Oliver did an excellent segment on conspiracy theories and I, I think you must have a certain type of personality or life experience to believe that the hundreds or thousands of people and experts who say one thing are wrong, but the one person who made the YouTube video that says, I'm the only one telling you the truth is right, right? You must have some built-in desire to be anti-establishment. I don't know about that. I think, I think conspiracy theory in general, I believe the concept of conspiracy theory is our attempt to stay in control, right? Right. So, oh my God, 9-11 was so horrible, so shocking to all of us. I can't just believe that it was just a terrorist group that we completely didn't see coming and snuck in and did this to us. It's got to happen again. Else. Right. And so if, if I convince myself, yeah, then I don't have to worry about it happening randomly again. Yeah. If I convince myself, right. I actually know what happened, then I am exerting control on it. Right. Um, or over it. The, the look for anyone who's listening, who really wants to try to learn a little bit more about this. There's a, um, a blog. It's not mine and I have no affiliation with it. It's called The Oatmeal. Yeah, I know The Oatmeal. It's called yeah. The Oatmeal. And if you type in The Oatmeal, George Washington's Teeth, <laughs> you're going to find a cartoon. I mean, it's it's perhaps the most effective communication I've ever seen. Um, you'll find a cartoon about George Washington's teeth. And I won't, I won't ruin the punchline, but what it teaches you in, in, in a really digestible manner and really quickly through an experience is that um, if I suggest an idea to you, Sarah, that's contrary to something you hold dear, you literally feel like I punched you in the stomach. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. When I watched More Than Mean, mm. which, by the way, is brilliant. Thank you. When I watched More Than Mean, which I'm sure everyone here knows, it's where men had to read to you tweets they didn't write about horrible, what do you call it? Um, de de degrading tweets to you, largely mm -hmm. uh, misogynistic. When I watched that, I got a pain in my stomach. Like I literally felt a physical pain watching these men. And I can see Dan, the producer nodding his head too. Yeah. I, 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 and you could see them have a pain in their stomach. They had a physical response to words. I imagine you did too. Um, I imagine you got that physical response when you read it, right? So words can initiate a physical pain in us. And if I were to say to you, Sarah, Cornell is a horrible school. <laughs> you just had a physical pain, you know, if, if we weren't just playing a game. Right. My grandfather went to Cornell, as did my sister, by the way. So <laughs> you, um, they sound smart. Yeah, they're, they're the smart ones. <laughs> so you, you, you feel a physical pain. So if I say to you, um, you know, your candidate is lying to you about this. What your brain hears is the tribal leader who protects you and keeps you warm and fed and keeps the cyber saber tooth tigers at bay, um, you know, is is bad. That can't be true. It physically hurts. So that that limbic response, right? Physically feeling words, physically affiliating with ideas, is dangerous, right? So part of what a good intelligence analyst learns, and I have a background in that, and my firm does that, is you know, you are not your ideas. 
Hmm. Right? If you have a bad idea, you're not a bad person. And what that allows you to do is to release ideas and allows you to yeah. test ideas. So hmm. if you're not your ideas and I offer a new idea, you know, like Cornell is not a great school, but Brown is a great school, <laughs> right? You, you, you could say, Hmm, let me consider that for a second. You know, obviously I'm yeah. right. Brown is a great school. I get it without <laughs> feeling limit pain. So you know, right. It's the, it's, I saw uh, something the other day that was perfect. It said, normally normalize the idea of learning new information and being willing to change your mind. And it sounds so obvious, but it is incredibly difficult for most people right now because of the manner in which we are constantly debating others and wanting to stand firm to whatever side, side quote unquote, we're on, on literally anything. I think that's a great quote. Uh, and I, I, I think that's right. And you know, there's all these little homilies that if we kind of just buy a real simple sentence, everything will will actually will be better. Like right. the golden rule. Like yeah. you, know, you want that. Like <laughs> if we just follow any of these things, and, and what you just said is another one of them, right? Yeah. Um, you're not your ideas, and that means you can let your ideas go, uh, and you can try a new one on. And and ideally, you learn the skill on how to try on new ideas. You and, and what we have to do when we have something as dynamic and dangerous and terrifying as a pandemic is we have to accelerate the process of learning. And the way to do that is to find the experts you can trust. And you made a point earlier about, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of peer-reviewed studies from decades and centuries old institutions who have saved billions, millions and millions of lives versus the guy on the internet. Yeah. And the reason the guy on the internet uh, can pull, the guy on the internet with, by the way, with negative, with, with, with nefarious intention right? Effectively a bad person on the internet. And a lot of these people are bad people and there's Russians behind a lot of them too. Mm -hmm. The reason he can grab your attention as you'll learn in this movie, the social dilemma is there is an AI robot. There's an AI piece of software, not a robot, an AI piece of software that's designed for Sarah Spain or RP Eddie. And it knows how to limbically activate me. It knows how to turn me on and make me click, click, click. And it's going to marry me to that one person who has that one YouTube video that just fits so well with all my preconceived notions, mm. all the things I hold so dear, all of my, you know, George Washington teeth side, all the ideas that I want to believe um, that it's just, it's like water flowing downhill. I just fall right into it and I fall right into the next one. And that's dangerous. Yeah. So when you look back at, at March, you were pretty optimistic about the president taking it seriously, uh, the fact that our knowledge about the disease would grow, that we would eventually replace uncertainty with knowledge. And even though some of that knowledge would be bad and sad and depressing, and we would have to mourn people, we would eventually understand and trust the science. You did acknowledge that for the first time in your life, there were errors on the CDC site, which was something sort of surprising to you. Um, are you still optimistic or have, have you seen the things you thought would happen over the last few months, not go the way um, you expected? When I was a very young professional, I had, you know, truly uh, an honor of getting to work with leaders of the CDC and the public health service and, and then later WHO and others. And these are, these were men and women who were, had dedicated their lives at very low pay to saving millions of other people. And, and they really are an angelic group. They really are the best amongst us as most doctors are. And I got to work with them and learn from them. And I came out of that experience completely sold that A, they were intellectually rigorous and B, they were very well-meaning and intentioned. And, and also in the instance I mentioned, American patriots, right? Like these are very special people. Now, Contrast that to the reality that a pandemic is just by definition a really hard nut to crack. This is not easy. Mm 
And, and we discussed also culture is a big aspect of this. So I had a ton of confidence that what we were going to hear from America's public health professionals, the ones I mentioned, was going to be right. And it was minus one error. And I don't want to mm-hmm. focus on it right now. I'm happy to talk about it later. And it was an error about masks. And you all know what right. it was. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is these are multi-degreed, multi-decade-long students who are basically monks and and female equivalent of monks, you know, I don't know what mm-hmm. they're called, nuns or something, working right. to <laughs> make this work for us. Um, and, and, and they've largely lived up to that. And then I presumed, um, because hope springs eternal that our president would also listen to the experts and, um, make the right decisions. As I mentioned, as you know, 190 other national leaders have already done thereby having a better outcome than we have less people dead per capita. Um, and I was wrong in the latter and, now, to be fair to myself, I think I was being intentionally optimistic and giving him every benefit of a doubt. I've worked with our president before. I have, I think I have a pretty good understanding of how he makes decisions. Um, I didn't quite, and look, very simply, I presumed that he, whatever motivated him um, would be which in which in those in, in that instance in today's instance is to get reelected and to be you know liked as a president like he wants right. to be recognized as a good president he wants to get reelected like any president nothing wrong with that that with those goals in mind and all the lego pieces put in front of him by these experts he could build the little tower he needed to get there right. um effectively i presumed that he would be able to make the right decision when presented with all the right information and advice and I knew he would have the right advice and information, and he didn't make the right decision. Uh, and and the, the Woodward tapes are illustrative of the fact that he knew the contours of the disease, and he just made a bad decision. And and I think he, I don't think it was evil. I think he actually thought that um, we don't want to panic the people because I don't want to panic the stock market because being a New York guy and a business guy. At least he, panic on uh, about that. We'll panic about other things like an approaching caravan that doesn't exist or other things that will aid me, but not about something that might potentially affect my reelection. Here, here. Um, and so he, yeah. Um, and he just made a bad decision. And, and what he did in that instance is he misunderstood the American people in our history, right? We, we Americans don't get afraid, right? Americans don't run. Americans don't panic. Americans rally. And, you know, you and I obviously remember 9-11, but there's a, (laughs) look, go back to 1900 and just go through the list, right? Mm -hmm. World War I, we rallied. Spanish flu, we rallied. The Great Depression, we rallied. World War II, we rallied. Korea, Vietnam, you know, um, uh, we rally. We we conquer. You know, you give Americans a mountain, we'll climb it. You lay out the crisis for us, we'll defeat it. Um, But when you lie to us or you try to coddle us or you become a nanny state, which is such an anti-Trumpian point of view, ironically, um, then you fail us and and then we failed. So I didn't I didn't think he would make such an error of judgment. Right. What he did. Because punchline, my punchline point, sorry to interrupt you, Sarah, really quickly is he's now looks like he might lose the election. And. The, the primary polling reason he's losing a lot of seniors and others who are necessary for his victory is because of his poor performance on Corona. So he right. just, he, he missed couldn't, manage, yeah. Yeah, he couldn't mm-hmm. manage and lead to the outcome he wanted. 
What is interesting? Yeah, I, I wanted the one he wanted. I saw I, I saw someone point out, and I hadn't really thought of it that way because this feels like a terrible, awful thing that was destined to cause us mourning and sadness and depression. But those other instances that you pointed out, including nine eleven, eventually did bring us together. There was such a feeling of lifting up your neighbor for the most part, not from everyone, but for the most part, lifting up your neighbor. It was terrible in in many ways, um, anti-Muslim rhetoric and, and things like that, but uh, of rallying together. And instead, this has divided us further. It's sort of a remarkable because opposite. Because of leadership. Yeah, right? well, yeah, exactly. We are, yeah. we are herd animals that live in tribes and the a mask has become a gang symbol. A MAGA hat has become a gang symbol. A Black Lives Matter flag has become a gang symbol. Mm -hmm. um, whatever side you want to be on, and I'm not picking one or the other, we are become, look, America, at least since the Civil War, certainly, has never been this divided. And the polling shows it. 25% of people on each side of the party believe this election is existential. Um, it's never happened before in this country in, until perhaps the civil war. We don't really have the right polling data, but we can presume it was pretty bad then too. So yeah, it's a, it we're, that's a whole different set of conversations. Happy to have it, but we're in a real horrible spot. We're in a tough well, leadership is also intentionally, well, let's separate everything into red and blue. And if I were just leading this and if I'm only leading these people, right, that idea of my leadership extends only to a certain amount of people then is inherently going to divide those people instead of bringing them together in uh, uh, the same cause, which would be, of course, to, to stop stop this. Uh, and with that in mind, I, I want to get to another couple things. So hopefully I can keep you for another couple minutes. Um, the The in March, we talked a lot about um, how it would affect us right away. And it was more old people, more people with existing conditions. We thought it was respiratory, and, and maybe that's not the case. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it might be more blood-related. And because there's so many blood vessels in our lungs, that's why it was affecting people's respiratory issues so predominantly. But now, there's not only the concern of if you get it, how will it make you feel right now? It's there were asymptomatic people who are now presenting heart conditions. So they didn't feel it or know anything when they had it, but months later, their hearts or their lungs are reflecting it or neurologically they're reflecting it. So these long haulers that are both people who suffered immediately and are now continuing to suffer and people who suffered not at all when they had it, but now technically the virus is gone from their body and they are still experiencing limb numbness or loss of taste or GI issues or neurological issues or memory loss. Um, can you help us understand? Because I personally, and, and, and particularly in sports, as I'm trying to engage with people about whether it's right to have Big Ten football coming back or everything else, is not just if you have it now, it seems like these young athletes are mostly okay outside of the myocarditis issues. It's more that what happens if the 43 players on LSU or whatever it is, months from now, multiple, have longstanding lengthy issues that uh, we couldn't predict because we have no long-term cases. Yeah. Brilliantly put. Right. So, so, so I'll just make three comments. So one is the cohorts, the groups of people who are affected by this disease has become more clear over time. Although we had really excellent data very early on. Um, there was, there was a cruise ship. You recall, we got good data from that case, crystal something. And then obviously in Wuhan and China, there was pretty good data. So we were fairly aware early on that this disease is largely lethal, initially lethal. And I'll get to your great points there in a second to older people. And, um, and that's still the case. Uh, and certainly, and, and to some extent as a father of three little boys, thank God, um, whereas Spanish flu killed children, um, other diseases, you know, tend to strike children polio. So that, that's part of why this wasn't as panic inducing. 
Um, you know, and I mentioned it before, but people who've died of this disease largely have died alone and silently walled off. Their families can't be with them because of contagion issues. It's, it's not live screamed over Facebook. You know, you don't see, and because of HIPAA issues, you're not seeing a lot of the death and destruction. Uh, and they're older people in many instances. We also didn't have, um, and, you know, I guess to some extent, thank God, and to some extent it makes it hard, but we didn't have a major celebrity die, right? So we had some of my favorite musicians, John yeah, Prine and Toots. Early Toot on, died. yeah. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary. Really two of my favorites, John Prine and Toots from Toots and the Maytals, but we haven't had a major celebrity die. We didn't go through that again as a tribe and watch it happen. So again, it seems sort of distant. It's harder to be limbically activated. You asked about the disease mechanism. You know, it, it feels initially very much like a respiratory disease. I think what we we know now is that it creates what's called a cytokinine storm, and it creates a, in many people an over response of your immune system, and you end up killing yourself. It also creates a problem inside your lungs, which is part of the cytokinine storm, where you create a protective mucus that makes that it's very hard to get out of your lungs that present prevents your lungs from absorbing oxygen it now we we do know it has neurological effects as pulmonary effects it it um it has effects across the body there's aspects of you know why does it hit men more than women maybe it latches on to certain testosterone receptors it, the the disease mechanism is pretty well understood and and not by me um but what that means is and that gets to your final point, which which it fits very much into. And I don't know if you're referring to that kind of weird Penn State rumor because it wasn't any more than just a phone call. But I I don't find it hard to believe. But part of what I want to make sure we all pay attention to is real peer-reviewed science. I don't know the Penn State thing. The Penn State thing was the trainer for Penn State made one comment, then corrected himself. The initial comment was something like, some very large percentage of the team. Oh, the Ohio State. Ohio State. Oh, State. I thought it was Penn State. But anyway, that a, a coach or a trainer right. said that asymptomatic players had heart enlarged heart, as you were saying. Yeah, it was the um it was the medical expert that was advising Ohio State and the Big Ten, I believe, and then had to walk it back because of the right. way people reacted to it. Yeah, but it was right. about whatever percentage of myocarditis and heart enlargement in the tested players. Yeah. Right, so no, I'm so gonna, I wasn't speaking specifically to that. A bar, yeah. I bet you a beer in Chicago that was Penn State over Ohio State, but none Okay. Right. All right. And so so then we get to um um long-term health effects. So okay. I was just speaking with, and I won't mention his name because, you know, maybe he was talking off the record to a, a I'm breaking my own rule about uh, <laughs> appeals to authority. Let's say there are uh, studies that are done now that have yet to be peer reviewed. And there may be some that are peer reviewed that are just not in front of me right now that say the lingering health effects are quite nasty of this disease, even for asymptomatic people. So what does that mean? It means that some percentage of folks who get the disease, and it's more than 30%, according to- It was to Penn studies. State. I owe you a beer. All right. There we go. <laughs> Ohio um, State was a different one. <laughs> so some of these folks um, um, have lingering health effects, and and meaning they have a hard time. They have, you know, they have lung damage, brain damage, heart damage, and the long-term effect, or, or something as small as like the the, the, the taste or, or, or smelling problem. That why does that matter? Well, it matters for them, right? I mean, it's a really big deal. As you said, you could be asymptomatic and have a lingering effect. That's horrible. You clearly could be symptomatic and have a lingering effect. That's horrible. It also matters because it's expensive. And this whole disease has proved to be really expensive. We had to shut the economy down in many areas. That costs a lot of money. We have to take care of a bunch of people. That costs a lot of money. Well, now we may have to take care of people, have have, have healthcare costs 
that will go on for the rest of their lives, decades and decades of, of, of incurred cost. And that's expensive too. And remember, it's not just their checkbook, right? And even though we don't live in a, a, a country with socialist healthcare, we all, the economy is burdened by these increased healthcare costs. Why do I mention that? What kind of geek out in economics? Because as we think about solutions, should we do a, you know, should we shut down bars and concerts or, or is it okay? Or should we enforce mask wearing or any number of these solutions, some of which we know work while they do have costs, we now understand that the benefit could be to avoid this multi-decade long massive expense. So it needs to be considered when people make decisions about this. Yeah. Well, and also, uh, you know, for me personally, as, as I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively young and I'm healthy, so I'm, I'm not as afraid as early on of getting it. Not that I couldn't have something terrible happen, but I, now I'm afraid of getting it for the potential that long-term I'm just dizzy or I can't remember things as well, or I'm really tired or any number of those things that they've, they've suggested about people and same goes for, for everyone else. So what level of discussion should we be having about the long-term effects and our inability to know them now? Well, um, there's, because there's, that feels like a big deal to me that if a whole bunch of people are deal. out and about and didn't even know they got it, yeah. but then could be, you know, they could, they could have had it and it went, they were asymptomatic. They never got tested. They never did anything about it. But now months later, there are things presenting that may be the result of it. Um, you know? So, so at least be confident the science has been done. Um, longitudinal studies are a little harder to do than everything else. Meaning like, Hey, Bob was in here last week. How's Bob feel in a month, right. a year, but they're being done. Uh, and that's good. Uh, we'll probably find the data is better from countries with socialized healthcare because they, they do a better job of tracking longitudinal health data, but we'll, we'll figure We'll, we'll know the answer and it probably won't be a happy answer. Right. Um, but it's not out of our control, Sarah, right? It, you there's, there's, there's a few people, there's a few types of professions that are, are going to have a very hard time protecting themselves. The rest of us just need to wear a mask. It's not that hard. Wear a mask, stay six feet away. Um, and, and don't get sloppy, right? The disease doesn't take a vacation. The disease doesn't care. You were, you did well, nine out of 10 times. The disease just cares the one time mm -hmm. that you walked into that Starbucks without your mask on the air was stale and, and you got a viral insult, right? It, and it doesn't care that you were there nine other times and you were great. Um, so it is within our control to protect ourselves. And why does that matter? Well, A, it matters because we should do it. B, it matters that we know that. If you're not aware that it's in your control, if you are too terrified, you make bad decisions. You enter the stupid zone, right? Mm -hmm. When you're under stress, you make bad decisions. So don't be stressed about this. Just be aware. And, and it's like wearing... Well, it's not like wearing a seatbelt. That's awfully easy. But just realize mm -hmm. that yeah, wearing a mask is pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's not that hard. And um, wear a mask, stay six feet apart, be very aware of indoor areas. You know, if, if it's worth anything, the, the 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 best studied super spreader event was a choir, um, and and effectively everyone in the choir. I think more than 30 or 40 people got the disease from one person from a three hour choir practice to our choir practice. So like, uh -huh. that's kind of all you have to know, right? right? A choir, you're, you're breathing really hard. You're, you're expirating really hard. Well, when else do you do that? And you're talking really loudly, a bar in a bar, the music's mm -hmm. on, it's loud. You're next to people, a concert, uh, a sporting a concert, event. right? A, a meeting where you're too close to other people. Um, so, so if the air isn't moving and a lot of air is coming out of your lungs, then be aware. And you should have a mask on the whole time anyway. 
um, there, and I could go on, but, um, well, while we're on that, what, what do you think of the, of the coming months? It's obviously flu season complicates things, cold weather, the potential pushback of what it will feel like to re quarantine. The first time was, this is sort of weird. Let's stay in and, and binge watch some shows. Now it's, I don't want to do that again. I remember I already did that. And now it's been nice out and I've been able to go to dinner outside. Um, how do you see the, the, the coming months? We have um, at, at Ergo, my firm, we've built an epidemiological curve, and I'll give a shout out to Connor and Kate, who built the curve with the help of many, many experts around the world. And it's a predictive curve of where the disease is going to go. And it's been the most accurate curve I've seen in the world, more accurate than the model the White House uses, more accurate than a model I saw from the CDC. It really has been accurate. Um and why do I brag about it? Well, because maybe you should have some confidence what I'm going to say about what the curve okay. says. The curve okay. says Good news. our model, it's not, that it's <laughs> going to get worse. Um, so uh, why? Because people are going back to school. People are going back to work. There's mask fatigue. There's um, there's uh, flu. There's obviously in the winter we're more indoors. That's a big, big one. So, and by the way, the disease didn't really fall during the summer, but the reason it didn't fall during the summer, it fell in the summer in places that were afraid of it, where it hit really hard, but it rose in the summer in places that didn't believe in it, right? Mm -hmm. So people weren't wearing masks uh, and weren't social distancing. And, and a lot of governors were just being assholes and letting their people die. I mean, some unbelievably poor leadership in many states. Um, still going on in one state right now. So mm -hmm. in this winter, we will be inside uh, more, obviously, and we'll be in enclosed spaces. We'll be in uh, closer contact and the disease will probably continue to grow. So our, we have a prediction on the number of people dead. Right now, America passed the very unhappy milestone of 200,000 Americans dead. The number is probably actually about 220 if you do undercounts. Um, our prediction is 350 to 400,000 dead by the end of the year, that would require a pretty large increase in infections and deaths. Um, and it also would presume that our ability to treat patients doesn't get dramatically better. Uh, and by the way, our presumption, our, our curve is predicted on current, current what are called MPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, or put more specifically, current rules, right? So under the current rules per state and the current habits of people per state, the current mobility of people per state, which we can track via a firm called SafeGraph, phone mobility data run by my friend Oren, we make that very sad prediction. If people change these things, if they wear more masks, if they stay home um, uh, when they don't have, when, when they can, I'm not saying shut down, then we'll be, we'll be happier and healthier. Just quick note, sorry. We don't need to do a full shutdown. We don't need to lock ourselves at home. There's country after country, state after state where, just by staying out of super spread areas like bars and restaurants and, and, and parties uh, and wearing masks and social distancing, you can knock the disease down to very low levels. And what does that mean? We can get back to football games. We can get back to a bar eventually. We can get our kids to school instead of at home on computers driving everyone crazy. Um, and in a state like Connecticut, we have a guy named Governor Ned Lamont. Like he, he rocked this, right? He rocked this. If, if, if America had followed the same rules that Governor Lamont put in in Connecticut, instead of 220,000 dead, we'd probably have something around 100,000 dead. We would have saved over 100,000 lives of Americans if we had implemented the same rules that Connecticut implemented. And that was not a complete shutdown. 
So one note here on the Saturday morning, RP Daily, RP talked about the possibility of the ergo future COVID infection and death models changing because of the changing behavior uh, that might result from the president's positive infection. Uh, And here's what he said about expecting sort of one of two things. I suspect we will see safer behaviors by most more Americans. Our epidemiological curve has a bunch of inputs. One is mobility difference over the same time last year, right? So how much are people moving around, going from place to place compared to last year, when, of course, we didn't have the corona threat? And then within social media, we use an AI to figure out something, some, some variables around mask wearing and some other adherence issues. And the third is policies per state. There's a bunch of other variables. Those three could change in the next seven days because the president's infected. The GOP, by polling, is much less likely to see COVID-19 as a threat. Now their leader has this disease. So for some people, like, oh, gosh, the disease is real. People who were completely foolish and think it was real. For other people, they might say it just might become more limbically activating. So we might see less mobility, more masks, less infections. So we, you know, my modeling team, it's up to them. But I would suspect that they're going to model a week of safer behavior. Now. If the president pops back and he's fine, I think we see the opposite effect. Um, and I think that has a cup. I think it'll have an impact on the epidemiological curve, depending on how he messages it. If he comes out and says, I'm better, but that was scary and, and it really hurt and it, I had tons of pain, never been so sick before, that, that's a, if that in fact is the case, then um, people will, will be more concerned and they will have safer behaviors. If he comes back, he's like, no problem. I'm the alpha male. I'm the lion in the jungle, which is a bunch of messaging that his, his spin meisters do this. There's this whole series of, there's this whole conversation around the spin meisters and on different conservative media about that. Like he's the alpha, he's constantly in the attack. He's the lion. He's out there. And they, this is part of how his strongest supporters talk about him. If he comes out and stands on that messaging and brushes off the disease then he could increase risky behaviors in particularly the GOP, but across a number of people. Um, you know, a story inside a story, if he happens to get convalescent, convalescent plasma or monoclonal antibodies or remdesivir at the perfect early stage, all three of which are limited to most people, and he comes out and he's like, I'm fine, this was nothing, he's doing a disservice because he got treatment most people aren't going to get, just as a footnote. You can get more on the geopolitical effects of Trump's diagnosis. You can check out the full video and the rest of their series of fantastic videos on COVID um, that they've been doing since early March. They also just did a really fascinating interview with uh, tech exec and star of The Social Dilemma, Tristan Harris. You can check that out, too. Okay, back to the original interview. That's what she said. You mentioned it earlier, but before I let you go, uh, you would say if people want to stay informed, not scare themselves, but at least understand their risks and understand best practices and know what they should be doing as things continue to change, the focus should be just to follow the latest of, of Dr. Fauci. Yeah, don't listen to what um, non-epidemiologists, non-vaccinologists said, say. So that means me and that means the president of the United States. Listen to the experts like Dr. Fauci. Um, like what he says. It's hard, unfortunately, because he's so behind so many layers. Um, I do um, a show twice a week on the Nantucket Project. I think if you Google the Nantucket Project and it's called the RP Daily, I didn't name it. I find it pretty haughty, and I, but it is what it is. Uh, my co-host Tom and I go over the science regularly, talk about a bunch of these issues. We do our best to present the real expert points of view on how to stay safe. But Sarah, again, you don't have to do any of those things. Wear a mask, stay six feet away, and don't let your bubble get too big, right? So the whole thing goes goes south 
if all of a sudden you're like, oh, I've been really, Rook, real example here. We got five people in this household. We've been excellent about our distancing mask wearing, I, I, I believe. My kids are, are now, thank God, at school. Now, I have to now all of a sudden really presume that that school is keeping them in masks and distanced and with good ventilation. I happen to believe they are in that one school, which is a very lucky circumstance. I'm not so sure about their schools, but boom, I just blew my bubble way open. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to keep your bubble tight. Pick your meaning, pod. Meaning, meaning who are you with without a mask on? Otherwise, right. wear a mask. Right. Uh, someone asked me the other day if I wear a mask at home now that my kids were at school and I was kind of like, oof, I probably should have. And maybe I So if you have when 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 it gets colder out and we can't meet outside, if you want to see friends, wear a mask inside from across the room. If you need to see people and you live alone or or you're really lonely and and, and or either have a pod of people that you know don't see anyone except for the very small number or potentially hang out with a mask inside. Yeah, and realize back on what we were saying earlier, depending on your age, you know, so if you're the things that make this disease deadly is being over 65, then 75, then 85. Holy shit. It gets, it gets to 15% lethal for someone over 85. That's bad. Uh, harder for men than women. Minorities, particularly African-Americans, Hispanic, and Native Americans, really bad, really bad outcomes. Comorbidities, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma. Um, when you, it, it, in young people too. Right. Yeah, so, right. So, a, so contrary to my previous points, a young woman who's obese, like, for example, a young African-American woman who's obese with asthma, who's 25, be nervous. Right. Um, now, the, but you made a but great. But shouldn't we all there. be nervous? Yes, because exactly. You made a great yeah, point earlier. The long-term let's stuff. Not, let's not be panicked. Not let's, panicked, but Let's let ourselves socialize. But as you said earlier, the, the long-term health effects you know, the jury's still out and it's looking pretty bad, right? So and, even- and if it's considered a, um, an, a pre-existing case and anything goes south with uh, our medical ability and uh, insurance, depending on uh, the election and everything else, then all of a sudden there's however many thousands of people who have a quote unquote pre-existing Ooh, condition. I hadn't thought about that. Wow. That's a great point. Yeah. Sorry to bring down the room again. I was yeah. trying to end on a mild yeah, We have to have fun before we say goodbye. Yeah, I just was thinking if we're all considered pre-existing condition, if you had it or you possess the antibodies, then you could be denied coverage. And then we have this whole other massive issue. Wow. Good point. I have a fun thing we can talk about. Okay, go for it. Um, you and I both have a friend, uh, some friends who run a company. And one thing that's been fascinating is how people have responded to this in inspiring ways. So why don't we brag about them for a second? Okay, cool. Good finish. Strong finish. A company company called Sloan Valve, and we all use the product all the time, right? So every time you go to the airport or a a stadium and you use that little flush valve, it says Royal Regal and you flush it or the faucet turns on automatically. I have no no ownership in this country, by the way, in this company. (laughs) They own this company. It's like a 115-year-old union shop in Chicago, family-owned business. They pivoted their whole business towards hand-washing stations, uh, they are about you know hygiene, right? That's what the business is. And so that's that's awesome. The other thing they did, which I thought was so inspiring, when the George Floyd protests happened and we all watched the slow motion murder of George Floyd under the knee of a police officer, they wrote a letter to, as a major employer in their town in Chicago, they wrote a letter to their uh, police chief and mayor, I think, and said, hey, listen, you know, you know who we are. We've been here forever. We pay a lot of your taxes in this town. And we, um, we employ a lot of people in your town. I don't want one of my employees under your cop's knee. I would like you to write back to me and tell me what kind of training you have in place to presume this, to show this won't happen. I want to know what the body cam 
uh, situations with your police department. I want you to communicate to me why our town isn't going to look like Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'll help you if you need help, but we're in this together and I'm holding you accountable. And I thought, I thought that was brilliant. Um, and, and they also, I loved, sent a message to all their employees saying, we will give you paid time off to be involved in a community issue that is meaningful to you. Not only you know, will we support you in whatever effort you want to do philanthropically or to help the community effort that's meaningful to you, uh, whether it's related to the current you know, civil unrest or otherwise, we will give you X number of days where we are paying you to go out into your community and do good, which I love too. Amazing. And I think they set, they, they, they've lit a path that a lot of corporations can follow. And the two examples that one you gave and one I gave, I think that pretty awesome, you know, and, and that's what this is about, right? A, like a depression, like a war, pandemics reveal the cracks in our society. They reveal the disparities. They reveal the weaknesses. And we can choose to ignore those or we can choose to improve on those, right? So this is an x-ray. We now see what's wrong with us and there's a lot wrong with us and we can decide to take that and, and fix it or we can decide just to shovel it under the rug. That is the positive message we were looking for at the end. The things that we can learn and build and grow from as a result of uh, unfortunate circumstances. RP, I know you're super busy and uh, your brilliance is needed all over. So thank you so much for thank lending you. it. It was fun, fun talking with you. You owe me a beer and it can't be Yep. Too. All right, great. I'll take it. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, anyone complaining about wearing a mask, and that includes people who are broadcasting football on TV and talk about how their ears hurt. First, get a better mask. I mean, if your pants are too tight in the crotch, you don't wear them, right? You probably get another pair of pants. Well, the same goes for a mask. There are many kinds. If around the ears ain't cutting it, you can get the kind that ties in the back. That's what I have. If it gets sucked into your face when you breathe and you talk, then get one with thicker material. If it's always falling off your nose, then get one that fits properly or one that has a nose wire. And if it doesn't look cute, then you can attach a little gold sunglass chain to the end like a necklace and boom, you're trendy as hell. My friend did that. It looks cute. Uh, One day if I snap, it's probably gonna be about this because Jesus people, it's not that hard. Think of all the people with real problems and yours is that you're inconvenienced by a piece of fabric that could save your life and the lives of others. I mean, seriously, quit your bitching. Okay, I feel good about what we accomplished today. First, stop wearing shitty masks. I switched to one with a thick fabric. It stays on my face, but away from my mouth and nose. It ties around the back and it hangs comfortably around my neck when I'm not wearing it. And it's white leopard print with a neon string and totes reminds me of spring break. So it makes me happy. So get your heads out of your asses, change your perspective, be grateful for your health and safety and shut the hell up about uncomfortable masks and get a new one. There, I fixed it. Don't forget to go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review. That's what she said. Five stars, obviously. Next week, I'm going to answer some of the questions I didn't get to on the live podcast, so be sure to listen. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.